listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Have any of you heard a Native American tribe called Cherokees? The Cherokees are indigenous to the southeastern United States, including Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia. Recently, I read an article about a ceremony that the Cherokees have for the passage into adulthood. The article was about a boy from the Cherokee tribe, and it described his life and the ceremony that he had to go through before he became an adult. The ceremony that they have to go through is very interesting. Because the Cherokees live out in nature, they raise their children to be strong. They learn to fish and watch and hunt for food from a very young age. After they learn to survive in the wild from a very young age, when they are old enough, they go through a ceremony that allows them to enter adulthood. Their ceremony involves the father of the boy taking him very deep into the woods. As soon as they enter the deepest parts of the forest, the father blindfolds the boy. Then the father says to the boy, You must stay through the night, alone in these woods, blindfolded. You must not take off your blindfold under any circumstance. If you still have your blindfold on when I come to get you in the morning, then you are finally an adult. The boy must spend one night alone in the forest, blindfolded. And after spending that long night alone, he finally becomes an adult. How do you think the boy felt? I'm sure that he was very afraid, not being able to see anything in front of him and hearing all the noises of the animals around him. But there is a very interesting twist that is hidden in this ceremony. In the Cherokee tribe, for a boy to become an adult, he must spend one full night out in the forest alone and blindfolded. All boys must go through the ceremony to overcome fear and make them strong in order to become adults. That is why, even though these boys are scared, they must overcome their fears. They must have enough courage to spend the night alone and blindfolded. But as I stated before, there is a twist in this ceremony to becoming an adult. Maybe there are some of you that figured out the twist. Each boy believes that he is spending the night alone in the woods. But in reality, his father is right next to him all night long. The boys must have been very frightened thinking that they were all alone in the woods, but each boy's father was right next to him to take care of him through the night. When I was reading about the ceremony into adulthood among the Cherokee tribe, it made me think about our relationship with our Heavenly Father. This is how our life and faith sometimes feels. At times we ask, where is God? Why is He letting all these difficult times happen to me? Is He leaving me alone at a time like this? I hope that God is not neglecting me. There are many difficulties that we go through in our lives that make us think these thoughts. Did any of you have these kinds of thoughts in your life? 
I've had these thoughts many times in my life, but when I finally got through the hard times, I realized the same thing. God was with me through it all. I know that those times when we are fighting through the difficulties, we think that we are alone and that God is neglecting us. But if you look back closely, there is not one moment that God left us to face the hardships all by ourselves. You're not with me. 
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Change is Possible, based on Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. And can I just say that I, I love the book of Haggai? Now, we know that in this book, that it was in 586 BC that Babylon destroyed Judah and the temple and then exiled all of the Jews uh, into Babylon. Now, this was a huge deal for Judah because the temple was central to their identity, politically, ethnically, spiritually. And so here, the Jews struggled with a massive identity crisis for 50 years as they raised their kids in, as alien exiles in Babylon. God sent the Persian king Cyrus, who was also a foreigner, to defeat Babylon. And he told Cyrus to return the Jews to Jerusalem so that they could rebuild God's house and worship him there. Well, we know as the story goes along that an initial struggle caused a work stoppage. But by the time Haggai comes and speaks to them, their water break had turned into 16 years of disobedience. So God's people, they were distracted and they were discouraged. They were discouraged because they remembered the past glory of Solomon's temple and the resources they had. It seemed hopeless and they seemed unable and ill-equipped to be able to do what God had called them to do in rebuilding that temple to its former glory. To make things worse, they're led by Joshua and Zerubbabel. A priest without a temple and a king without a throne. Make no mistake, this book, it's not about bricks and mortar. That's not what this is about. It's about God awakening His people to Himself. It is about a spiritual movement of God amongst God's people. And in chapter 1, God's Spirit revived them to work. And so they, they stopped the work stoppage and they went to work. And now what we find is, is that they have been at work. And as Haggai wraps up this morning, we're going to see that what the Holy Spirit means is that change is possible. First way that we're going to see this in verses 10 to 14. Chapter 2 of Haggai. What we find is, is that Haggai trying to ask a question with his people. And he's asking this question, is our work ruined by our sin? Do we have any hope in doing what God's called us to do? Beginning in verse 10. It says, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone is unclean by contact with a dead body and touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, does become unclean. In verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now, on the face of it, there's really no significance to that date of December 18th, 520 B.C. Uh, that we begin with this morning in verse 10. I mean, there's just, there's just no meaning or significance to this date. You'll remember other dates might have had significance, but this one doesn't seem to. And it's just two months after his last prophecy in the first part of chapter 2 of Haggai. Now, the prophet asked the people to go to the priest for a decision on what might sound like a little cryptic riddle about meat touching other foods. 
So you might be thinking, well, is he worried about salmonella? Like, what's the deal with the meat? But friends, he's not worried about food regulations and cleanliness in that sense. What he's concerned with is holiness and purity. That's what really Haggai wants to talk about as he ends this book. And, and what he says is, is holiness is, is what you need to be thinking about. Now, holiness, if you don't know, holiness means being consecrated to God, being devoted to his service. One commentator clarifies the situation being described by Haggai for us who might seem and feel far removed. He says, the consecrated meat taken from slain sacrificial animals is placed in the fold of a garment that subsequently comes into contact with another food or drink. And now the question becomes, in such circumstances, will the thing touched by the garment also be rendered holy? I mean, if the meat's holy and touches the garment that touches the food, then is that food also, therefore, by extension, holy? And the answer, of course, is no. It doesn't work that way. Now, that's exactly what he wants us to be thinking about in the context He wants us to be thinking about the fact that holiness is not quite contagious like that. So the short answer to his question, no, it's not holy. But he's really just leading into a more pertinent question that he asks in verse 13. He says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? In other words, is impurity transferable? And the answer there, of course, is yes. Uncleanliness is, is highly contagious in the Old Testament. So if you're in the Old Testament and you touch a dead body, say you have someone that has died and you have to deal with the body, then you have to go through all kinds of rituals to purify yourself, to make yourself holy, so that you can then again worship God in the ways that you ought to. And so there are all kinds of duties that you have to do to get clean again. And so what Haggai does is in verse 14, he sums up his main point for Judah. And here's what he says. So it is with this people, this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so it is with every work of their hands. What they offer is unclean. Do you see that? I mean, just think about it. He's called them to work. And then he says, okay, as you go to work for a holy God, I just want to remind you that you're unclean. Thank you for the word of encouragement. Do we really see the gravity of what God says here? He says that dirty people can't make clean things. Now, even more important is a question, how can sinful Judah build a a temple for the holy God, right? I mean, that's in context what they're thinking through. And they're already at work. They've gotten back to work. And so maybe they're thinking, does it matter anymore? See, sin is, it's a reality where we disobey God, and God says the result is is that we become both guilty and filthy before Him. So in other words, there are results in us in the way that we respond and relate to God because of our sin. We are guilty in the sense of the fact that we have sinned against the high Creator God who made us and owns us. And He is good, and yet we have chosen to disobey Him, not trusting that He is as good as He said He is, And as a result, that always leads to death and judgment. And so we are guilty before God. But it's not just that we're guilty. The scriptures also teach that we are filthy, that we're unclean. So we are unclean before God spiritually. We need to be cleaned if we're going to come before this holy God. Now that's why if you look at Jews and the way that they worship God in the temple, they had rituals for cleaning themselves, washings before they could actually worship God. And they also had acts of worship in God where they would offer a sacrifice for their sins. Do you see it? Washings for the uncleanliness, sacrifices for the guilt. 
And, and they had to do both to come into the presence of God and a holy and righteous God. Now, we might feel a little far removed from that. But I don't think that we're far from the feeling of the guilt and the filth of sin. And in here, uh, what we are being shown through Haggai, speaking to his people, is that there is a bigger issue that Judah needs to deal with. See, Judah was immersed in a deeply sinful, unclean Babylonian culture for nearly 50 years before God called them to rebuild the temple. And for the past 16 years, they've continued in their disobedience before God, failing to obey Him and His direct word to them until just recently when they repented of their actions. You know, I'm guessing for them, sin felt a lot like water would feel to a fish. Just try to ask a fish to describe what water feels like. It'd be hard for a fish to explain. Why? Because he's always in water. He doesn't know anything different. And so in the same way, Judah had been immersed in sin and in many ways probably had lost sight of what holiness looked like and wondered if there was any way to get back. I bet they were wondering to themselves, how can such a sin-stained people like us serve a holy God? And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel so dirty because of past sins and you fear that you've charted some new path for your life, for yourself that you have started to write an identity for yourself that cannot be washed away or changed, that you are going to be defined by by what you have done in such a way that it cannot be new or different, and there's no hope for the future, and you're thinking all is lost. I mean, how can you serve a holy God with, with your filthy hands? Maybe you feel that way this morning. You don't feel like something that God is going to choose to use. And so is there hope for you? Is there hope for me? You know, maybe you're you're just asking yourself this question in your mind over and over again. Could a holy God love a guy or a gal like me? Well, it's like a young man I shared uh, the gospel with recently who responded, you know, I just can't believe that God could love someone like me if he really knew me. And maybe that's you, and maybe you haven't told people that, but that's really the main question that resides between you and God. Is there really hope for change for you? Friends, let me just tell you this morning that there is good news in the book of Haggai for sinners who have sin-stained consciences and sin-stained lives. There is hope for you. There is a future for you. There is gospel change that is possible. But before we get there, we need to ask a really important question. We need to ask what kind of change we're looking for. In chapters 2, verses 15 to 19, I want you to hear the way that Haggai begins to unfold the hope. It's interesting. He begins in verse 15 and he he says this, Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight, and with mildew and with hail, and yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord." Now, here's what's fascinating. I I told you that date, December 18th, 520 B.C., that Haggai led with. It didn't seem to mean anything, but you know what? I I think that it might not have meant much before, but God tells Judah to mark it on their calendars from here on out as the beginning of a new day. Now, what's interesting here is that he begins with their lives before the change. So, in other words, he doesn't forget the sinful past. He highlights it. And he says, look, this is where you were. And I I don't want to ignore it. Let's talk about the back history behind your daily labors for the past 16 years. I'm going to tell you the hope. But first, let's review what's happened in in history. 
And notice their secular work according to this text. The work that they do that may not seem like God's work isn't divorced from their relationship with God. But they've received the underachiever award every year for 16 years. Just think about that. I mean, this was not a slow, like, um, this was not a quick experience and then they learned the lesson. For 16 years, every year they went to the party where they handed out, you know, awards for various achievements. You know, Bill was the guy who, like, had most sales. You know, the most productive was John. And then, of course, there was Judah, who once again completely underachieved. Going and looking at their work and seeing that they had underproduced. They planted for 20 measures and got 10. And all of their wine vats seemed to be empty because apparently they had some kind of leak. They always got less than half of what they expected. One year, it was the flood. Another, it was the drought. Don't ever forget those locusts. I mean, there was always an excuse for the reasons that things had gone wrong. There was always a reason that they could see with their eyes, but they never considered the more important cause. And don't miss this. The more important cause, according to Haggai, and according to the Lord, is their sin before God. Sin before God caused their work and industry to be less than profitable. And for 16 years, Judah scratched their heads in disbelief and went back to work. You know, I don't know why this is this way. I just guess it's the way it is. I guess we'll just do it again. But here's the problem. They cared far more about their circumstances than their hearts. They cared more about their crops than their God. And they looked everywhere for solutions to their felt needs. But they failed to look to God for their soul needs. And Judah's biggest problem wasn't empty vats. It was hard hearts that refused to turn from living for their own desires to living for God. And in verse 17, God reveals that bigger issue saying, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and then with mildew and then with hail. And yet you did not turn to me declares the Lord. And just as God cursed the ground that Adam toiled on in Genesis 3 when he sinned against God, him, yet again, and says, you as a people did not turn to me, declares the Lord. He struck the refrigerators and their wallets. And God's not just pilfering their their grapes and their grain. So he's striking at the longings of their hearts that have been arrested and have arrested their attention from God's work. And he says, this is the thing that's got you captivated? Then this is where I'm going to come and meet you. And he's striking the longings of those hearts. He's frustrating their diversion into working for themselves rather than working for God. And he sucked the joy out of working for the trivialities of this world instead of seeking the grand vision of the mission that he has called them to. You've been made for more. And I'll do anything and everything to to let you know that today. You've been made for far more than these things that have sucked your attention dry. And God doesn't strike His children. Friends, hear me. He doesn't strike His children because He likes to hear them cry. It's not our God. That's not the way that God disciplines His kids. He strikes them to bless them with something better. Judah repented of their sin in Haggai 1. And the only reason Haggai states the past, really, in this text, is not to rehearse what failures they've been. But what he's trying to do is, he's trying to say, something new is happening here. This isn't the way that it's going to be anymore. And in verse 18 to 19, he tells us the dramatic change in our relationship status is here. Look what he says in verses 18 to 19. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, 
Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. It's a new day. Not, not like it was in the past. I was striking you, but now I'm blessing you. Dramatic change of events between God and his people. All because they repented before him. Do you see that curse reverse? This displays God's merciful disposition towards his repentant children. 16 years, today everything changes. What a beautiful declaration by God. What hope. He blesses them. He was patient and restrained in his discipline during their disciplines and their disobedience. Patient and restrained all throughout their 16 years. And quickly turns to bless them in their repentance. Do you see that? Patient and discipline, quick to run to bless them. What a good God. There are a couple of important realities that we see here. First, remember, Judah's biggest work problem wasn't empty wallets, it was hard hearts. It didn't matter how often or how hard the Lord struck them, their hearts were impenetrable. No matter how bad things had gotten, they still had just enough money, just enough relationship, just enough whatever not to look to God, right? He didn't take enough away. They still had just enough not to look to the most important place, God Himself. And it took the Holy Spirit to awaken them to their true need. Is that you this morning? Impenetrable? How hard would God have to strike you or or me to, to get our attention? Having just enough might be extremely deadly for your soul. But there's a second thing here. Notice that God strikes them to bring about change in their lives. Do you see it? It's not, I strike you because I like to see you hurt. No, I strike you because you need to change or greater suffering is coming. He loves them. God strikes His people as children, not enemies. Did He not strike His Son to bring life, not death? And that means that God loves us if we are in Christ, as He loves His Son. See, we have been united to God's eternal Son through faith, such that the Bible gives us this image of God's love for us, that He loves us with the same kind of love that He has for His eternal Son. So that when God looks on you or me, He looks on us as in Christ. That's the favor that God has for you. The love that God has for you, child of God. It's really unfathomable to think about the love of God. We don't really have categories for it. And so because of that great love, I know that God loves me. And yet I also know that I discipline my kids because I love them. And the other day I was disciplining Johnny and he said... I said, do you know why I'm disciplining you? And he said, no, not this time. And I said, because I don't want you to go to prison. And even more importantly, because I want you to grow up to be a great man who loves Jesus and glorifies God. That's very important to me. And did you know that that's what God wants for all of his sons and daughters, that we not be slaves and prisoners to sin, that he free us to righteousness and to himself? And he disciplines us so that He can give us something better than what our sinful fallen hearts tend to want left to themselves? That's what Hebrews 12, 5-11 says. And maybe we've all experienced this to some degree in Christ. Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
You see that? Don't forget that you are sons and daughters of the living God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Don't don't, don't question his love for you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see it? Discipline, benefit of sonship. But he disciplines us for our, catch this, for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It it might be painful in the moment. Sweet fruit is coming. Sweet fruit like you've never tasted before because of God's discipline in your life. It's always for better than what you have. It's to take dead things to living things. So often, I believe we believe what needs to change in our lives is not us, but our circumstances, right? We talk about this all the time. We need to be reminded. When in reality, it's our hearts that need to change. Your circumstances aren't separate from what God's doing. It's central to what God's doing. So let me ask you this morning. If you trust that God is as good as what He has said, and if you trust that all things to work together for good, as Romans 8.28 promises us, and that God disciplines those He loves, as we just read in Hebrews 12, then just how engaged do you think God is this morning in your financial struggles, in your issues with your spouse, in your sickness? Friends, He has not abandoned you. He is meeting you there. Do not be deceived into thinking that you are alone in your suffering. God is right there working in your heart, shaping you in ways you've never been shaped before, creating in you what will be a rich harvest of fruit in the future. That's the promise that we have here in the gospel. What a promise. And could it be that the greatest change that you need isn't in your circumstances? Your greatest need isn't to change your husband, your job, your child, neighbor. I mean, God says real change is possible, but the change that you need most isn't a change in circumstance, it's a change in the heart. And so here, I'm not saying it's sinful to pray for a better income or reconciliation with your spouse. God will help us in those things. We need His help. But yet, are you attuned to the change that God is trying to bring about in you in those circumstances? See, the thing that you might think is the cause of your problem just might merely be the occasion of it. But catch this. We need God's Spirit to help us repent just as Judah did in Haggai 1. In fact, I believe that our final verses point us forward to a greater hope that we have in Christ. Look with me in Haggai at the end, in verses 20 to 23. There it says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Same time. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down. Everyone by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, by servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So here we see Zerubbabel's signet ring. We have to ask, what does this mean? Because it's not spoken of specifically in the New Testament. 
Well, here Haggai concludes with really an incredible word of hope for Zerubbabel, that king who has no throne. He says, I've got an incredible word of hope for you. Listen close, because this is awesome. Clearly, God has the return of Christ in view here, where the kingdom of God will climatically overthrow every kingdom and nations as the heavens and earth shake together before the mighty, unique, unparalleled presence of God. But verse 23 is unique from the image that we got earlier in Haggai in that it begins and ends again with this phrase, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the all-powerful Lord. That this promise that I'm bringing you, it is nestled between two descriptions of myself as all-powerful. So I'm going to tell you I'm all-powerful before I say it and after I say it, just so you know I'm serious and I can actually do what I say I'm going to do. And so he he says in the middle of that something that was kind of probably unbelievable to Zerubbabel. He says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Let me me explain first what a signet ring is. Uh, Signet ring is really just a ring that a king or dignitary would have that he would use to imprint and wax on a seal of an official letter or document to confirm that that was actually a letter being sent by the king with his authority. And so the kings would have worn that ring either on their hand, and I mean, I've seen some of them, and they were like massive, like, things, like almost like wearing like, you know, an iPod on your finger or something. And then other times, most of them would wear them like on a necklace around their neck. And they had to keep them with them at all times to keep them safe. Because you can imagine if somebody went around sending letters and just sort of put your seal on it and said it was from you, right? Dangerous business. It could get a nation like in trouble, maybe even send them to war. And so here, this king has the signet ring and and God himself, the great king says, I'm going to make you this. I'm going to make you a signet ring for myself. But I think there's another text here that Zerubbabel would have had in mind when he would have heard these words come from the lips of the Lord from Haggai. Herbert Wolf, commentator, says Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-four is critical here. There, God tells Jehoiakim, a king in Judah before the fall, and as it fell, he tells him that he is going to be pulled off like a signet ring and cast into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God threw his old signet ring away. Like, that's gone. That king is gone. And not only that, he was sent into exile and received a curse that none of his descendants out of Judah would ever rule on David's throne. But in Matthew 1.12, it's fascinating that Jeconiah, in other words, for Jehoiakim, appears in Christ's genealogy along with Zerubbabel. Jehoiakim was in the line of David, who was in the line of Jesus, along with Zerubbabel. In other words... God still brought up his king through Judah. He still brought him up through the line of David. And what he's saying here to Zerubbabel is, I am making you a promise that I am not done with you. That I'm going to do something great amongst you. That the Messiah, the Christ, is going to come from your line. The promise to Zerubbabel. What a promise. The guy's name means seed of Babylon. And from the seed of Babylon is going to come the seed of salvation. I mean, he would produce the Messiah from the line of David who would one day lead his people out of bondage to sin, death, and the devil to build a new and better temple than Zerubbabel got to build for his people. And that's not all. The New Testament teaches us that the Holy Spirit, catch this, seals you and me as believers 
as a pledge or down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance. God seals us with his spirit making a promise of the future that is to come in the same way that he set Zerubbabel as a seal for Judah of a future that is to come. So just like Judah received the fulfillment of that promise, the Holy Spirit is going to fulfill the promise of the future inheritance that awaits us. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 speaks of this. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Sealed with the Spirit. Here's what this means for us. I believe that the Holy Spirit that seals us changes us. When we put our faith in Christ, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, everything changes. It's a commitment to change. So here's some ways that I want you to think about the Holy Spirit and the the encouragement that He gives us that change is not just possible, it's promised. The first is is going to be for non-Christians. I want you to know that you need to change your life. Whether you feel it or know it or not, you need to change your life and live for Jesus. There is no greater hope or need in your life, no more important decision in your life than living for Christ. See, Christ died on a cross for your sins so that you might be forgiven before God, innocent and not guilty, so that you might be a child of God, not an enemy of God. He wants to change your identity from the inside out. So that you're not defined by the petty accolades of this world and the trophies that you get in this world, but by Christ himself and his work on your behalf. He wants to call you his own, his child. He wants you to be a child of God. And he will change you. There's a second thing uh, that I want to think about for Christians. This is where just, just about right here, six things Christians should think about the Holy Spirit and change. First, the Holy Spirit drives you to change your life from being lived for yourself to living for God, obeying him as Jesus did. The, the Holy Spirit... He he comes to you and he changes your life, your life trajectory. He says, I want you to live for me, not this world. Second, the Holy Spirit will cause you to change, producing spiritual fruit like love, peace, and joy rather than being a fruitless tree. Also, the Holy Spirit will cause you to change from hiding and cultivating sin in your life to killing it. You no longer grow sin, you grow fruit. Also, the Holy Spirit changes your future from death to life. The Holy Spirit promises you an unfailing inheritance that nothing in this world can compete with. And the Holy Spirit changes your relationship status with God from enemy to child. God loves you as he loves his one-of-a-kind son, Jesus. And finally, the seal of the Holy Spirit means that you represent God. You carry the seal of God on you so that you become an image bearer of the great king everywhere you go.
now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and apps. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Following is the program called The Good News of the Gospel. Hello listeners, my name is Yangyan Winston and you're listening to our program, The Goodness of the Gospel. Hello everyone, my name is Brian Winston and I am the co-host of this program. Last time, we looked at the Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, we discussed how the Hebrew letter Bet means home. We also discussed Jewish theologian and Pastor Mark Biltz's explanation of how God began his story using word that meant home, showing how much he wants to create and build houses. We discussed that to build house means to create a family. That's right. That is why the stories from the Bible reflect God's plans. It explains God's ultimate plan for taking his people to the New Jerusalem. We often have the misconception that God created the world hoping that everything would go well, but then things changed, his plans changed, when mankind decided to sin, and ultimately God was forced to create a new plan. This is not true. God began his creation knowing everything that was going to happen. We discussed that God knew the end, and because he knew the end, he began his creation with an ultimate plan. We also discussed how God does not lose even one of his chosen people because that is not part of his plan. That's right. Today we will take a look at the gospel and God's creation with the ultimate plan that he had for taking his chosen people to the New Jerusalem and its bad news. As we discussed in the first lesson, we have to know the bad news in order for the good news to become good news. It must be about the fall and corruption of a mankind. Yes, we will continue studying Genesis. God created everything so that it looked good in his eyes. All the work done by our holy God is good. God created the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman, and they were to live in and look after the Garden of Eden. We will take a look at the important parts of Genesis in chapters 1, 2, and 3. First, can you read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 for us? Of course. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Let's all read it together. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is where he creates his people. That's right. The family that God wants, this is where he creates the first people for the family. This is something that we must think about and remember as we read these verses. That is, whose form and shape the humans took after. It is written in the Bible that they were made in God's image. That's correct. But for mankind to be made in the image of God does not simply mean just the physical image. The image translated into Hebrew is the word salem. This word means shade, to form a shade or shadow. It has a meaning of seeing something that is really not in front of you. It means to form something that represents something else. That is why this word can sometimes be translated as an idol. An idol? When we hear the word idol, we think of the Gentiles. Yes, that's right. But what is the original meaning of an idol? An idol is an image or a representation of a god created by man using trees, rock, or dirt. You're right. The original meaning of the word idol is an object or image created for the people to worship. That's right. To summarize, when God created mankind, He created them in His own image, not only in His physical image, but created to fulfill His work. What this means is God takes care of everything, right? Yes. Our God who takes care of and created everything created man in His image that will do His work for Him. If you take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, when God created mankind, He tells us His purpose for creating them. What is His purpose? God created man in His own image and told them to rule over the fish, bird, and all living things on the earth. He created them to rule. Yes, and he repeats this again in verse 28. He tells them to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He does not tell any other living thing to do the same. There is another important thing. Can you read chapter 1, verses 5, 8, and 10? First, verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, day one. Verse 8. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, day two. Verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called the sea. And God saw that it was good. Yes, when you take a look at these verses, what kind of work do you think God is doing? God called the light day, darkness night, expanse heaven, dry land earth, and gathering of waters seeds. That is, well, He gave them names. He gave each of them names. I think that's what He did. That's right. God created names for them. 
what it means when God gives them all a name is that all these things belong to and are taken care of by the one that creates their name. God created the universe and gave it its name. Psalms chapter 147 verse 4 tells us that God counts the number of all the stars, gives each of them a name, and calls each of them by its name. It means that all the countless stars are all under God's rule and care. Come to think of it, this reminds me of something. I remember that Adam created all the names of the animals. Yes, that's why I brought up this topic. I will read Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And in verse 20 it says, The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. So, that means that Adam, who created all the names for the living creature, has the right to rule and take care of all of them. Yes, that's right. God tells Adam to look after all the animals. So, when we say that God created man in his image, it means that he created us to take care of all the living things like he does, right? Yes, that's absolutely right. Then, there will be some of you thinking, I understand what all this means, but how does all this relate to the gospel? We must first understand all of this in order for us to understand why bad news is really bad news. That is the reason for telling you this story. So I hope you all continue to think about it. Just like you stated before, Young, for mankind to be created in God's image means that God gave mankind the responsibility of looking after everything, like God does. We are God's representatives. Now, can you read chapter 2, verse 9 for us? Yes. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is where sin begins, and the story of the tree of knowledge of good and evil begins. Yes, that's right. It is a story about a tree of knowledge that lets us know about good and evil. But there is something ironic. We are so interested in the tree of knowledge in the verse we just read, even though there is mention of another tree other than the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You're right. There is also the tree of life. Yes, that is true. But that's not all. There is also a tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. So, in the Garden of Eden is a tree that is pleasing to the eye and good for food. There is also the tree of life there is also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But in this verse, what kind of tree is in the middle of the garden? In the middle of the garden is the tree of life and the tree of knowledge 
of a good and evil. Yes, there are two types of trees in the garden. What did God say about these trees? Let's take a look at verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From the tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you surely die. Now, what does God say? God says that you may eat freely from the trees in the garden, but you may not eat from the tree of a knowledge of a good and evil, because if you do, you will die. Yes, that's right. Now, let's organize everything we've learned so far. Who is man made in the image of? Mankind was made in the image of God. Yes, and what does that mean? This means that man is given the responsibility to take care of and look after everything just like God does. They are given a duty. That's right. And what kind of trees are in the Garden of Eden? A tree that's pleasing to the eye and good for food, and the tree of a life, and the tree of a knowledge of a good and evil. That's correct. What kind of tree is in the center of the garden? In the center of the garden are the tree of a life and the tree of a knowledge of a good and evil. That's right. Now, the reason why we received. All this is because we have to remember all of this to understand step by step why what happens next in Genesis chapter 3 is wrong. Now, another important thing to remember is that God told them what sin is and what the repercussions of sinning would be before mankind actually sinned. Of course, God didn't say word for word what sin was, but we can understand. From God's words, what sin is, and what the result is from sinning. Do you know what it is? I think that the answer is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. I think you can know. What sin is from this verse? Sin is doing something that God tells us not to do, and the result is death. Yeah, that's right. What you said was absolutely correct. Sin is to do something that God told us not to do, and the result of that sin is death. We will now look at three original meanings of sin. I guess you are saying that sin has a multiple meanings? Right? Yes, that's right. In Korean, there is only one way to say sin, but in Hebrew, there are three different ways. First is the word hata. This is the word used most often. It means to move away from the target. Yes, I think I have heard of it. That is, not being able to reach the standard, right? Yes, that's correct. That's why sin does not meet God's standards. It means going against God's words. The second word that means sin in Hebrew is avon, and it means to twist. Twist? To get twisted. 
Then, can you say that twisting God's word is a sin? Yes. When you don't accept God's word just as it is and twist it around, it's a sin. The third word in Hebrew that means sin is peshe. It means to counteract or commit treason. It is openly going against God's words. Yes, that's correct. We briefly went over the three different words that mean sin in Hebrew. Then what do you think sin is? Sin is hata, not keeping the standards of God's words. Avon, twisting God's words. And peshe, openly going against God's words. Yes, that is absolutely correct. That is exactly what sin is. Sin has to do with God's words. It's when you do not keep with God's standards of God's words, twisting His standards, and it is going against His standards, and that standard is His words. When the sin comes inside of you, you will surely die. Death will come inside of you. But God's words about sin, that is, who does God tell not to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because if they do, they will surely die. Was it Adam and Eve or just Adam? The answer is in Genesis chapter 2. I think he only said that to Adam. I think God said these words even before he created Eve. Yes, that's right. After speaking about sin in Genesis chapter 2 verse 17, God says in verse 18 that it's not good man to be alone. So he took one of Adam's ribs and created a woman. That is why it is correct to think that God only said this to Adam. If this is true, then what duty was Adam given? I believe that it was Adam's duty to tell Eve about what God told him. It was Adam's duty to say to Eve, God told us to freely eat from all the trees in the garden except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If we eat from that tree, we will die. Yes, that is the duty given to him. It was not only for him to know, but his duty to let all those who have not heard those words from God know as well. The tree is not for anyone to eat not just Adam. Now, we discussed from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 about what we need to know prior to studying chapter 3 in the bad news. That is about the corruption of mankind. We looked at what we needed to know before hearing about the news of sin. I think it will be good for us to go over everything we learned today and remember all this when we continue on next week. When you read Genesis chapter 3, Remembering all that you learned today, you will begin to see what you haven't noticed before. If you get a chance, please read Genesis chapter 3 before meeting for our lesson again next week. I can't wait to find out what it says in chapter 3 regarding the good news of the gospel. We'll see you again next week to discuss what is written in chapter 3. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week. I hope that you all live in God's Word throughout the week. See you next time. See you.
going through a difficult time in your life? Do you feel that God has left your side every way you turn? Do you pray to God every day but still feel that He is neglecting you and ignoring your prayers? God is with you every step of the way. He never leaves your side. Just like the Cherokee boy who is going through the ceremony to enter adulthood, his father is by his side the entire time. He just does not let the boy know that he is near. The father is not allowed to let the boy know. This is so that the boy will truly become an adult. There is always a reason when God does not answer our prayers. God will never do that without a reason. God doesn't answer us because He believes that is what we need at that moment for our faith to grow. I hope that all of you can come to believe this fact. Let's read Psalms chapter 121 verses 2 to 5. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Our Lord, who watches over us, does not slumber or sleep. We must all trust that our Heavenly Father 
will always watch over us. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. When sorrows come and hope seems gone, you're the rock I rest upon. When waters rise and I can't breathe, you're the love that rescues me. Out of the darkness, lifts up my eyes. You